Hello everybody and welcome and this is the Midnight McBride Show and this week my special guest is Gregory Garrett. Now Gregory is the co-founder of St. Catherine's Retreat in Windermere and also co-founder of The Quantum Questions. Welcome onto the show Gregory. Thank you Pat. Thanks for inviting me. Uh, My pleasure, my pleasure. Although I've spent quite a large portion of my life in the last few years writing about meditation and going on meditation retreats and Buddhist centers and even transcendental meditation, I feel I'm in the presence of a far greater expert than myself. So I'm very excited about doing this show. Thanks, Pat. And just to remember, we're all mirrors. So, exactly. you know, to be able to observe, it means it's it's percolating inside. And, uh, you know, thanks for being so kind. And yeah, welcoming. no, no. Uh, I've heard a couple of people refer to you as a guru, which I think is an incredible compliment, isn't it? I'd, I'd say, no, I, I know um, some really high teachers and gurus. I would definitely wouldn't put myself on a par with them. Um, and that's not just me practicing humility. That is um, me really paying witness to the, the magnificence that I've been able to witness yeah. within um, human beings who are actually present on the planet with us right now. Yeah, I say there's very few enlightened beings on the planet at the minute, but there are a few, a couple. And I'd say Sadhguru is one of those. You know, I think he's an enlightened being as well. You know, I usually tell people how we met or how we were introduced, and it's through a former guest on the show, Mr. Liam Brown. Yeah, yeah. I mean, Liam, what a great guy. Yeah, you know, people, yeah. I, I have him on my phone as Choco God because he's he's now so well known for his, his cacao his ceremonies. Cacao ceremonies. Yeah. Yeah. Great energy. He came in the studio and we just, we basically laughed from start to finish. You know, yeah. we ended up doing two shows back to back and yeah, it was an absolute pleasure. Really good. Yeah. He's a beautiful spirit. Yeah. I also mentioned there's a few people, it seems to be that there's a, cacophony of spiritual people based in the lakes and obviously with Overston having Manjushri as well but Catherine Beaumont and Debbie Henderson and Ben Atkinson all guests on this show and all very spiritual people beautiful people and I didn't know whether you'd cross paths with any of those yeah I haven't I mean their name some of the names sound familiar Yeah. yeah you know it's quite interesting that you know, you can have proximity to people, even in a particular area like, you know, personal, professional, spiritual development and, you know, still not have the pleasure of yet. meeting them, yeah. Yeah, but, you know, the right time, right place, yeah. you know. Everything. I have a feeling you'll all cross paths, I'm sure. I, yeah. I think you're right. So I thought we'd start off, although we're going to go down your life journey mm-hmm. we'll talk about how you arrived in this present moment and then talk about all the amazing things that you're doing now with yeah. St. Catherine's Retreat and mm. the Quantum Questions I wanted to ask you one simple question to kick off the show and that is what are the Quantum Questions? So so uh, Lucy Pattinson um, one of the co-founders um, came up with the name the Quantum Questions and it came from a discussion with um, our teacher, Vaitananda. And uh, it came about really because um, society in the world now needs to begin to journey inwards. Yeah. And, you know, the saying, unless we go within, we go without. Yeah. 
And so um, myself, which will be probably part of this story today, and many other people have been lost in the material world. So the quantum questions is, is about turning the direction inwards and beginning to ask fundamental questions again. Who am I? Why am I here? What's it all about? Correct. That, that kind of thing. Yeah, very much yeah, so. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I know myself, I was I was lost in the matrix and in the pursuit of material wealth and power and status and all that kind of stuff for a long time, you know, and I think a lot of people get lost, you know. Yeah. And people, you know, the getting lost is about people talk about layering up, um, you know, putting layers in. And I was looking at a quote in your book earlier where you know, you're saying a, a square person doesn't fit in a round hole or something. Yeah, we need to yeah, take the yeah. edges off. Yeah, yeah. So, you know, very much the the inner journey is about recognising who we're not. And then, you know, going on the journey towards letting go, um, yeah. you know, peeling off layers, armour, um, being able to look at the, the shadow part of ourselves and then being able to see the beauty in that and embrace and you know, bring light back to those aspects of ourselves that have been dormant or asleep. Yeah. I think the quote is, the present moment has a round window and anybody with sides can't get in. Okay. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Beautiful. But yeah, yeah. Yeah, I, I liked it. I was only testing you. Yeah, well, <laughs> you knew your own I'll pass. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> this journey, for anybody that's watching this, it won't be anything like you think it's going to be. It'll be quite a surprise. There's a few twists and turns on it. And I think there's a book somewhere here as well, Greg. Uh, quite possibly many books, yeah. yeah. So we'll start off and you're a Liverpool lad. I am, yeah, yeah. I was born in Liverpool, 1969, um, 12th of December, so I'll be 51 this year, so I'm in my 50th year, yeah. and what an amazing year to be 50 in. Yeah, that's a very positive way of looking at it. <laughs> yeah, yeah I, I, you know, I think it's always important to remain positive in the sense that energies are moving in one or two directions um, they're either moving downwards or they're moving upwards and unfortunately um, as a um, community as a society as a planet for most people the energies are moving downwards which means you can look at the human condition and spirit and sadly people have a negativity um, bias yeah. it's a reality you know, so what does that mean? It means they're negative in their thoughts, therefore in their points of view, in their opinions. And it's not that they're being bad. It's just that we've trained ourselves. Exactly. To be to be this way. We're, so We're programmed and conditioned and for every positive thought, we'll have 50 negative ones. And it's been able to, like a conveyor belt, is to pick the positive ones and focus on those. It's that... That's a skill set. It's something you learn to do, isn't it? You know? Yeah, and therefore, you know, it's something you unlearn and then you can actually learn to be in the opposite frame, which is to be optimistic, um, to be upbeat and, you know, even to find the higher, you know, because we're talking about higher states of consciousness now. Yeah. And, and I th again, a lot of people talk about them. Um, a lot of people write about them but there's really actually very few people who experience them. Mm. Um, and, you know, hopefully we can get a little bit more into that as we go. So we're in Liverpool and you've got 
You're one of five children, is that right? I am the middle child, middle child syndrome. Right. You know, so... What is the middle child? I know what the, the youngest and the oldest, what's the middle one? No, the, I mean, middle child syndrome is I'm not wanted, you know, because ah. the, the, the eldest ones... You don't ones, get the attention from the extremes. Exactly. Yeah. You know, the eldest have already established themselves and then the youngest are the ones that everyone dotes on. So, yeah. you know... What Paul about me? You forgot middle. about yeah, me. Yeah, what a, yeah, 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 yeah. <laughs> and you went to St. Mary's School initially. Yeah, I went yeah. to the, the prep school, St. Mary's College, Crosby. So some people might see me as one of those, you know, privileged um, children, private mm. school, uh, Catholic school. Um, and then, um, yeah, and I remember enjoying, you know, St. Mary's. Yeah. But when we discussed it, you, you got beaten. Yeah, I I did. I, w I was beaten by the Christian brothers. Um, they were very quick to pull the yeah. leather strap out. Not, not very Christian, is it? That? <laughs> it's it's not Christian. And actually, yeah. you know, it, within the last 10 years, I met um, one of the brothers um, who was there, who was right. famous for his, for his violence. Yeah. Um, and I took him to task over yeah. it. And it's quite interesting to see an older man regress into being a young boy when someone's now towering over him, asking yeah. him very pertinent questions. Yeah. I I can sympathise with that, yeah. Mm -hmm. It it was, I think, commonplace. If you go back 20, 30 years ago, you know, we had corporal punishment. Teachers clip people around the head, give kids... Uh, you know, certainly, if not a beating, they'd certainly hit them, mm -hmm. you know, on a regular basis. I've seen that. And it's, I think it's terrible. You know, it's terrible that that was, we'd all became accustomed to that and that we couldn't see past it. But I always use this analogy and you have people, if you go back, I don't know, 150 years ago, saying you're born into a world where slavery is mm -hmm. still prominent. Do you at that point say, no, this is wrong, or do you not know any different? Quite often it's only with hindsight we look back and we can see the error of our ways, and sometimes there's a 50-year lag, yeah. you know, and we look back and we think apartheid, you know, burning witches, slavery, all these things now seem so ridiculous. Mm -hmm. But if you're born into that world and you don't know any different and you're mm -hmm. conditioned that way, would you know any different? You know, mm. I'd like to think we would. But. Well, I, I think the answer... Um, it lies in if if you imagine the level of consciousness that an individual has allows them to experience life in a certain way and interpret life in a certain way yet life itself also shows up at the level of consciousness that we're at so what was a really um transformational point for me was realizing that young greg back in the school when yeah. I was being beaten for not being able to read, w reflected the level of consciousness that I had. Now, I don't necessarily, I'm, I'm into many lifetimes. So what was my karmic inheritance that led me to this place? Yet being able to take responsibility for my consciousness at that moment in time gave me the opportunity to see all of the actors and players in a different light, to be yeah. able to see the parents doing the best that they could with their level of consciousness that corresponded to mine, the teachers in the same way, inside of all their thuggery and stupidity, having an equally low level of consciousness. Yeah. Yet there we all were 
acting out on the same vibrational level. Now, in taking responsibility for that, I can now make a shift. Yeah. But if I don't take responsibility, if I blame them, yeah. I've got no place from which I can move. Yeah. Wayne Dyer always said, blame has no place in a healthy mind. You know, um, blaming anybody else for your current situations. You might not want to be there, but it's your choices that have usually led you to that place. There are exceptions to this. There are always exceptions. But I used to talk about the fact that if somebody had an accident, that quite often they weren't fully present, you know, and that's the cause of nearly all accidents. Mm -hmm. And then we'd always get extreme examples. I'd give a talk and somebody said, yeah, but what if there was an earthquake or a hurricane? And, you know, I had an answer for it, but quite often, you know, people use extreme examples. There's always exceptions, but yeah, blame. I think once you start to take responsibility for your situation, your actions, certainly when you're an adult, then you feel empowered, mm -hmm. you know, not only do you take, take charge, you can then, you can decide where you go next, mm -hmm. you know, but that, that's a really important thing to learn, isn't it? You know? Yeah, I think very, you know, if you add the negativity bias we talked about earlier, it doesn't really go hand in hand with responsibility. You know, respo real responsibility is a, is, a, is a positive, forthright place where ownership is taken. And then from that place of power, the individual with their freedom of mind, you know, freedom to be creative, freedom to be optimistic, they're able to make a decision in real time. There is a, a decision that corresponds to that inner freedom. Mm -hmm. um, sadly, again, at the moment, uh, I believe the number is growing, but too few people have taken responsibility and are able to experience true inner freedom. Very wise words, Greg. Yeah. So you're in Liverpool and you're doing your daily rosary. In your notes, it says pilgrimages all over Europe. Yeah. With your family, how, do, how does that work? Yeah, so uh, both with the family um, and then also later on with the school that I went to. Um, but we would visit all the Marian shrines. So Marian are the ones devoted to the Virgin Mother. Yeah. And uh, my mother was uh, daily, said the rosary daily, up until her death last year. And she was also a daily mass goer. So we were yeah. in a heavily Catholicized yeah. environment. Yeah. Where did you go on your pilgrimages to? So, I mean, all of the shrines, been to Nock yeah. a few times, Medjugorje um, a few times, been to Lourdes um, many times. Uh -huh. So so quite literally, all, you know, all the shrines of well, Europe. I suppose there's some good aspects. You got to travel and see a lot. And, you know, I've not been to Lourdes. I would, I'd love to go. You know, so some some good points sides yeah, to it. Yeah, there's a lot mm. of good. I mean, you know, you I look at you know the whole aspect of devotion. You know, even if people could become devoted to something that was really meaningful and beautiful to them, which might not necessarily be related to spirituality. Mm -hmm. Yeah, a positive form of devotion. You know, maybe you know you you've been a triathlete. Yeah. So you know, devoted to health and fitness. I think some form of positive devotion is, is a great starting point. Um, you know, finding something of spiritual significance and becoming devoted to that can be much More later so. on down the line. Yeah. yeah, but finding devotion, first of all, yeah. is something I'd that, encourage people to That's do. interesting because 
I never would have seen it like that with, say, sport. But I suppose it is. It might not be spiritual, but you've chosen something and that's what you focus all your energy on and give your time to. It's still devotion, isn't it? Of course, yeah. 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 And discipline as well, part is yeah. another thing. What I found was quite an unusual twist in your journey. Although your mother's doing a daily rosary, uh, she's an alcoholic as well. Yeah, she was, yeah. yeah. Sorry, she was an alcoholic. She was. Yeah. I mean, she's no longer with us, yes. so she uh, she's, she's literally in spirit now, although she was... Yeah. in a different type of spirit when she was doing her drinking, you know. Yeah. So we were brought up around drinking alcohol and, you know, but you can look at it from a family lineage point of view, you know, even down my mother's side of the family, um, the Irish side, which the name was Marn or Mahon, the, um, they drank so much, the hotels and all sorts of big landowners went from owning all sorts to owning nothing because they, they yeah. apparently just drank it all. But yet, being a devout Christian Catholic and yet drinking all the time as well because they don't really go hand in hand, do they? Or they well, I say they don't, they actually did. They shouldn't go hand in hand. You wouldn't imagine them to, but I know from a Catholic background that people drunk heavily, you know. Yeah, I, I, I think they're more closely related than we might think in as much as you know through the conflicts that we have we begin to shape who we are and you know knowing who we're not leads us to who we are so you know my mum's journey into deeper into her faith was very much supported by the the long periods during which she drank Right. Um, which again, you know, we look at triggers. It was triggered by the lo loss of her father, who she was very, very close to. Who was a Labour MP. You, yeah. you know, so she had. She was part of a big political dynasty, um, as they go in in the UK. And then all of a sudden, you know, a whole generation, a whole chapters disappearing. So she disappeared into the bottle. Yeah. But then that journey into the abyss led to her awake, real, really big awakening into um, Catholicism, the whole Marian movement, the devotion to Our Lady. And, you know, so, so there was, you know, many great aspects and things to learn. Yeah. And the way contrast shows up in the world, you know, we learn through, as human beings, we learn through, through contrast. Yeah, dichotomies, dark light, black, white, yeah. And you see your father was an engineer. Yeah. Um, but then you also mentioned beatings again. Now, is, is that coming from your family rather than obviously the brothers? Yeah. So my, um, you know, I, I don't know whether it, it was just accepted as a norm in society at the time. You know, it was, and, and my dad would be away at sea. He was a chief engineer and then he'd come back and then, you know, my mum would encourage him, you know, those boys need to learn a lesson. Jared would be the words and I remember he'd come home. Run, run. Yeah, run. You know, we would run. And, yeah. and if you can imagine your father coming home, though, and you're so, like, this is built up now for, like, weeks or months. You're petrified. It's this anticipation of oh. knowing what's coming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely petrified. And then, you know, the majority of the time, we'd, you know, we'd get a really good hiding. But, you know, if you're not seeing your dad for six to 12 months, and then your next interaction with him is an absolute hiding. It's a bit like, well, this, really relationship, this, isn't it? well, it's like, yeah. this is totally, you look back on it and think, oh my God, you know, how messed up was this? But my mother, she, you know, she'd encouraged the Christian brothers, like they were all complicit. 
She'd encourage the Christian yeah. brothers to beat us as well. You know, these boys need to learn a good lesson. They've got no father at home. And it'd be like, don't worry, Mrs. Garrett, we'll take care of it. And it, It's crazy, isn't it? But we look at it now and it seems bizarre. But you go back 30, 40 years ago, it was normal. You know, that was how a lot of things went then, you know. Society's changed, you know. Yeah, I think it allows us, though, Pat, if we're, if we're realistic and honest, to go, all right, so we were in that soup, that consciousness. Mm. Beatings were being handed out. And so we then have to take responsibility for that. And I look at it and go, okay, so if I do take responsibility and what can I learn from it? How can I grow from it? How can I choose to be different? Yeah. What was it What was it that was preventing me from being the magnificent human being that I really am? And then really, you know, we start to move towards the idea of the quantum questions by being introspective, going deep into the self and, beginning to understand you know who am i really at my core at yeah. my essence yeah and that can be a lifelong journey trying to figure that out can't it it can be many yeah. lifetimes well oh yes <laughs> this part of your notes greg yeah really relate to 90 percent of this you know a lot yeah. of it i can relate to in the book i write about the fact that i believe as children we're still connected to what i call the spirit realm you still got your big toe permanently dipped mm. in and we have gifts that we lose as we get older, we become more corrupted by society and we become more material and we become stressed and we lose this connection. And I believe children can still see and hear things that we can't possibly, mm -hmm. you know, spirits, other realms, things like this. And I, I write about it in the book and even give examples of mm -hmm. it, the things I've, I've experienced. You say that up until the age of six, you're awake. Mm -hmm. And... I, I completely get that. And then certain things happen in your life and then they they sort of reel you in and then before you know it, you're consumed and all your energy and your attention focused into this realm and you lose that connection. Yeah. You know. Yeah, and I think for the listeners, you know, if you can imagine uh, a, a child having arrived with the basically the hard drives completely blank and then you know they're having this interface with the their primary carer which is the first being that they're interfacing with in a, in a loving way which is the mother character and then you look into mum and you you know your arms are open wide and your eyes are open wide and your heart's open wide and because that's the way the software set up it doesn't know any different it's looking for love but then the response that is given is something other than love you know be it in the form of a crossword a pointed finger or some form of you know unnecessary connection um, and then this spirit begins to as opposed to it being expansive and outward it begins yeah. to contract yeah and then those contractions lead to the the guardedness and the armor. And for the first six years, I, I, I now know that I was so awake and alive and open that I persevered with this. So it'd be like, mm, take a block, but you a blow, but you'd be like, no, but this is the being that is my primary love yeah. coordinate. And until I got to one hit one smack one beating too many 
um, where I actually, at the age of six, remember, I could take you to the spot now, a, a road called Bath Street in Waterloo, and sat on a, a piece of rock still there. Today. It's a very peculiar outjut, and I'm sat on it, and I just begin to weep, and I've got my head in my hands, yeah. and I make a decision, and the decision that I make is I either die, which because I, I, I thought death was imminent in terms of the way I was being treated, yeah. or I choose to armor up, guard up, yeah. and learn how to live in this world, which is, it's, it's an, I know it was an absolute turning point yeah. um, for me where I went from spirit into the material world at that young age of six. Yeah. Again, I, I do hope you read my book, Greg, because this, everything we're talking about here and everything we're going to talk about is covered in, in at some level in the book. I think that I was awake, very much so, and even awake till later years, to a certain degree, up until about 18 or 19. And then it all went dark. And I didn't wake up again until I was in my 40s. Mm -hmm. You know, and that section of my life, that period of life, I was totally consumed by this, the realm of the five senses, this world, and I'd lost my connection with spirit. And I had to find it again, you know, and it changed everything. I, I reverted back to that wonder, you know, that mm. state and seeing the beauty and everything and, and life became a wonderful experience again. So your mum wanted you to be a priest. This is true, yeah. Yes, at Up Holland College, is that right? Yeah, so she sent me as a junior yeah. seminarian at the age of 11. Were you an altar boy as well? I did the full altar boy yeah. Yeah, thing. Yeah. It's one of them things when you're a kid, you think, no, everybody's going to laugh at me, I'm wearing a dress, I don't want to do this, and but, you know... Um, a lot of kids have to do it. I don't know any that do it. Very few that do it through choice. It's usually forced upon them. Yeah, yeah I did it all. I mean, altar boy and then read at church for many, many years, you know, so was always there in service. Um, but yeah, I went to the boarding school, which is quite close to here. Yeah. Or Poland's uh, near Wigan from yeah. the age of 11 to 14. Boarding school for me, the two people that love you most in this world, in theory are your mother and father. They're supposed to emit pure love, mm -hmm. you know. And then when they send you away as a child, the child thinks, well, what have I done wrong? And mm -hmm. why don't they want me with them? And mm -hmm. they appear as that they're highly inconvenient. And it's very hard for a, a lot of children to get their head around that, you know. And then you don't have that zone of influence, that bubble where your family are there and your best mates and the people you knock around with are the people that influence you the most. And it's a very different life than living at home. Very, very different. And, you know, I could take this in a number of ways. Um, you know, the biggest lesson, though, I like, I like to look at things now optimistically yeah. and look at the positives. Look at the positives. Yeah, yeah. The, biggest, the biggest lesson for me is detachment. Yeah. So, you know, and, and, and if you think about being sent away from home, you're getting this huge opportunity to learn how to detach. Now, at 11 to 14, I didn't understand or get that. But later on in life, I realize, you know, further on on the path, if you can't detach, you are stuck. Yeah. And that's whether you're stuck to a bottle, to a pill, to a relationship. So you have to, at some point or other, learn to be very, very able 
Now, and yeah. when I talk about detachment, I'm not talking about ambivalence. No, just independence, isn't yeah, it? Yeah it's, yeah. yeah, it's independence in a heartfelt-centered way. Mm. Being able to allow what is taking place to take place mm -hmm. and to be able to bear witness to it, to be able to observe it. See, in a different way, but again, I can completely associate with that. When I was a child, I lived in Africa and we used to move around a lot. And by the age of, I think by the age of 15, I'd lived in 20 houses. I've been to seven schools. We moved around all the time. So as we moved around, and I didn't get a lot of warning when we moved, I had to learn how to have friends and then they weren't there anymore. And then I'd make new friends. And so I didn't really have any long-term friends. And... I learned how to sort of cope with that and it taught me how to not become too attached when I was a child. You know, I had to learn to wrap it up and move on. And if I let it suck me in and pull me under, I become really upset, you know. And so I, I learned those skills at an early age. Yeah, yeah and it, it, it's vital, as I say, you know, on the path um, because then later on you you begin to recognize ah actually i was learning this lesson as early as you know you know as early as six but then again at 11 and constantly being asked to let go of certain things but being able to then understand the the connection to myself could be so much greater as a consequence of not clinging to things in the material world. It's almost like the universe was training you for your your current your current profession and yeah, what 100%. you're doing at the minute, isn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Wayne Dyer always said he was in a lot of children's homes, but it made him very independent and able to stand on his own two feet. And he looks back and he can see all the positives from that, you know. So, yeah, I think everything that happens in your life leads you to this moment right now, being sat with me having this conversation and they prepared you for it and it's made you the person who you are and if you can see life like that it's it's all good yeah and you know i'd encourage all of the listeners you know to take a minute at some point today and to go and look in a mirror and you know ask themselves about the timeless part of them because normally when they look in the mirror they're looking at a new wrinkle or a line mm. You know, they, they've, it's backed up by some concern or worry or fear. But actually, you know, the timeless part of you is the part behind that. The part of you that when you were born was present, when you were three was present, when you were five, seven, nine, 11, 18, 20, whatever age you are now, 40, 50 years of age, the timeless part of you has always been present yeah. and it always will be. I'd, I call that, your soul, your true self, your true essence. And I always say that when you close your eyes, all of this, you know, this space suit we're in for a brief moment in this uh, human experience. But when you close your eyes, that never dies. That's, that's really, that's your true self. Mm, you know? That's right. Now, not affected by, but what you'd mentioned and we discussed in the show notes is that while you were at... Mm -hmm. That's cool. If there was a paedophile ring, is that yeah, correct? Yeah, correct. This, you know, reflects on the church as a whole. You know, it was going on worldwide. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it really has been a catastrophic. I mean, there's no other organization in the world, I don't believe, that would still be standing today. No. It had been shut down. You know, it had been finished. It's corruption yeah. at the highest level to the core. But, but for me now, it's looking at the energetic reasoning 
because even though they were promoting this this thing called Catholicism, they didn't understand the deeper teachings. I couldn't agree more. Um, and I, I won't, I'll try not to keep saying this, but it's in the book. <laughs> I write about that as well. In the first chapter, it's all about things that have happened that we sort of overlook and maybe looking at the world, getting perspective and seeing things how they really are is important. And to do that, quite often you have to step back uh, and become peaceful. And then you have contrast perspective and you can see things as they really are. Yeah, when I discovered it, Pat, I was really angry about it in the sense of could I have done more? Should I have been more observant as a as a younger boy? It's really yeah. quite interesting. You were a child that, at the time, though. Yeah, I, I, although I look at it, you know, I I was the same height, believe it or not. I'm five eleven. I look back, and there's certainly elements. If I look at the priests that were um, involved in the atrocities, you know, there's certainly energies around them that you can now look back and see. And I was a hindrance to them. Because I was this huge lad who was mm. from Liverpool, who was streetwise, and it didn't fit in with the narrative that they needed. So, you know, whatever help I was able to give, you know, I was still saddened by the yeah. depravity and the lack of consciousness um, and the sadness that, you know, certainly affected some boys' lives, you know. So then you went back to St. Mary's College. I did. Uh, How does that work? How did you go there and then go back? Yeah, so um, you mentioned earlier about the unwantedness. Yeah. You know, so I was... Um, oh, no, I remember there was this, this, this situation of what I call injustice where there's been someone stealing in the um in the school in in the boarding school now what i wasn't aware of is one of the reasons my mother had um also sent me to boarding school was because i um in some of my early years would steal from her so and um so when she takes me to the school at the age of 11 she does the really helpful thing of sitting down with the headmaster and some of the priests and saying something else you need to know about Gregory is that he steals from me. Uh. So here I am now, three years later, having so I, I I'd say having really settled into this um, boarding school experience, yeah. and then this thieving begins. And you know, finger I, points at you. Yeah, I find yeah. it quite hilarious because I'm like, wow, this person must be such a bad thief. Like I'm observing the you know, the way they're doing things and going about it. And it just seems like hilarious to me. Did you know he was doing it? I didn't. No. No, no. but then I get dragged in for yeah. it and I'm blamed. And I'm like, now I'm completely like, oh my, I'm now the unwanted. If you think about yeah. this constant running third child unwanted, centre boarding yeah. school unwanted. Now I'm in this school environment and I'm, I'm unwanted again. So this resonant unwanted energy had, had stayed with me as part of my storyline. Um, so to the point where I just basically say, right, enough's enough, I'm leaving. And I was so popular in, in the school with, with the lads and, um, and also parents. Um, apparently when parents were told, they wept at the fact from my year, we're a very small year group, it was only 14 of us. Um, at the fact that I was leaving, but at the, I was indignant. There was no way I was staying in this school, yeah. in this environment. And because you're a big lad, you were a, a rugby player. 
I, what I played. Avid. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I played a lot. And you still kept this up for years. Is that right? Yeah, I played from the age of six in the minis down at Waterloo in Liverpool, which, you know, was a, was a big club at the time. And then I played all the way through to age 35. Um, and, I, you know, I really did. I enjoyed the community, the camaraderie, the teamwork. Um, you know, I really um, loved it as a sport. I find now, looking back at it, I'm amazed that I did enjoy it so much because actually the physical abuse that you put your body through yeah. is something that I would no longer choose to do or choose yeah. to encourage. I played rugby for a while and I don't. I just don't think my body could handle it anymore. You know, um, and I'd be too worried about getting injured because then I couldn't run. You know, yeah, and if yeah. I can't run, run's a big part of keeping my mind in one piece. You know, and staying peaceful. But, but yeah, I enjoyed rugby. I really yeah. did. You know, especially when you're younger because you got all this and you want to get it out, and it's a good way of doing it, isn't it? You know? Yeah, and actually, just a funny story. When I, when I, I was eleven at, at the boarding school, between eleven and fourteen. Other schools would say, look, we'll play rugby against you, but you can't bring the big lad. <laughs> I wonder if we played against you, because I remember playing against Manchester Gamma, and there was, I think it was 15 at the time, and there was one lad, and he was enormous. And we'd all go, and we were all terrified of this one lad, yeah, you know, yeah. there was this big guy, so, yeah. I know, I know the feeling, yeah. So then, Greg, we talk about, you were celibate for a while. Yeah. Yeah, and I'm assuming that was a, a choice then, you decided that, you know, I just need some time alone, maybe, uh, to figure things out. Well, I, actually, it was more curious than that because um, I was actually uh, with my girlfriend who was to become my wife, Rachel, and I've got all this... I'm so conflicted because it's like, you know, people around me are beginning to get married and yeah. I've been to a priest training school. My mum always wanted a priest, so now I understand... I've got these conflicted energies colliding. You know, should I be following a path mm. into the church or should I be following the path as a, as a married man? How did you feel about that? Because this path towards it, were you being pushed into it or was it something you wanted? Yeah, so my, I, I, so I felt as if I was being um, pushed early on. Yeah. Um, certainly when I originally went to the boarding school. And um, and then later on, though, once I think you've bathed in those thoughts and ideas for long enough, yeah. you've been to enough shrines, you've said enough rosaries. They become yours without you knowing. Yeah, yeah. 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 So it's it's no, it's just for a form of indoctrination in a way. Yeah. So therefore, you know, whose life are you living out? Are you, are you living out the wishes of your mother and father, or are you living your own path, your own purpose, and? So I, so I was trying to wrestle with this conflict. And um, at the time, I just said to my, um, to my partner, Rachel, I said, look, I'm declaring myself celibate and I need to remain celibate whilst I work on trying to understand this, this decision. So then you get married and yeah. you, you were married initially for 20 or 25 years? 20 years. 20 yeah. years. Yeah. You're 25 at this point? Is that Ish, right? Yeah yeah, yeah, yeah. And you've got or have three children. Yeah, three magnificent children. And I'm yeah. assuming one of those children is the live studio audience today. Yeah, so Els. Els. Is oh. 18. Yeah. Yeah. She's with us. So then your career path. Yeah. This is where, these are the, there's a couple of points in this show where 
this will go in a certain direction that you won't foresee. Oh, I wouldn't foresee, sorry, the, the audience wouldn't foresee. So you're going to financial services. Yeah. Of course, that's what you do when you've been training as a priest. Yeah. But so how did that come about? Yeah, so you, if you think about it, so you go to a school like um, St. Mary's College Crosby, it's all about, you know, academia and sport and performance. And, um, and I, because of the way I was beaten as a young child, I, I, I just wasn't a good learner at that point. I'd had all sorts of interruptions in what I would call my ability to learn. Yeah. In a way, my abilities to learn had been beaten from me. Now, again, I take responsibility. I accept that as part of my path. And at the same time, it meant, well, there I was later on. I, I managed to get five O levels. Um, and then, you know, the other, I got an A in religion. Yeah. Um, so, so this keeps popping up, you know, this idea of if the universe was showing me something, it's saying, look, you need to pay attention to this. This is what you need to be working on. Yeah. Um, so, um, so then my, um, I get to the end of school and it's like, oh, well, what am I going to do? And uh, my uncle is involved in, in money and finance. And he says to me, oh, um, why don't you come and work for me for a period? Um, and I started to work for him. And basically over my first three years of working for him, I managed to build up around 10,000 pounds of debt, mm -hmm. uh, which meant that I was in this self-employed environment working with him, but I wasn't able to generate really any income myself. I mean, I had no credibility. No one in, in who, who was of any uh, means was able to really know, like, and trust me and deal with me as a businessman. So I got a really hard lesson and baptism in, so how does this material world um, work? But that was really my journey into into financial services. Yeah, it's, and, and property and stockbroking as well, is that right? Yeah, so, so a story then, so with my uncle, um, so he um, wasn't, great with money and one of the things that he did was he bought two um, properties supposedly in Fallowfield yeah. in Manchester and this is right many many years ago um, and then he didn't have the money to complete the um, the renovation and the reconstruction of them so he went to his mother who was my grandmother who lived at home with me uh, borrowed the money off her and then was never to repay it. So my life became hell and unbearable because I'm living in this environment. Yeah. If you imagine in a family where 30,000 pounds, which was a lot of money was owed, it became so unbearable that he said to me, well, there's one way out of this. If you remortgage these properties and put them in your own name. And I was like, well, what, what does that mean? What do I have to do? And sure enough, the forms appeared, I signed them. And next thing I know, I own these properties, but does he repay my grandmother? Yeah. No, he just takes uh. the money. Um, so I managed to get the houses finished, but then it turns out they're not in Fallowfield. They're on the wrong side of the bus shelter. <laughs> they're in Moss Side. Ah, uh, yeah. And now I own these two properties in Moss Side. The following year, I have to rent them out. I get called out. The carpets are being cut out. The boilers get cut out. I then get called to a shooting. And at that point, I decide 
I, oh my God, I have to let go of, of yeah. these properties. So that was my baptism of fire into property. I have to sell them at a huge loss. I think at the time, again, it was about 13 or 16,000, can't quite remember. Um, but Matt, so really a baptism of fire into yeah. money, finance and property. I, I worked in Devon for a while, um, going back about 15, maybe 20 years ago. And I rented my place out up here. I had an apartment here at Royal Court Drive, which was actually just near where the old infirmary was. And I came back. I couldn't get hold of the guy that was renting it from me. I came back and he'd he'd pulled out all the white goods. The windows had been put through. The doors had been put through. And, and it was, you know, thousands of pounds worth of damage. Yeah. And I didn't get paid the rent either. So sometimes it can go sideways it can go really badly you know i know a lot of people make money from you know being a landlord and renting property out but it my experience of it was terrible yeah and again my experience was terrible um you know there's a the, but there's always you know there's ironies in stories and actually if i'd have followed the formula and kept doing pretty similar but a little bit different you know finding the right locations you know, we, we'd have had a very different financial story. I wasn't meant to have that story. Yeah. So I'm not here sat with that. Yeah. But I, I realised how close and yet how far I was from different paths. There's certain phrases people say, and they stick with me and I like them. And I like that one. It's, uh, I wasn't meant to have this story. <laughs> I'm going to use that. Another lady I know who came on, uh, did a radio show with me called Diane G says, I said, so what exactly has happened? She says, I'm in a process of change. I yeah. like that one too. Yeah, yeah. So what's quite interesting, you, you've gone down this route. It's not going well at the minute, working in financial services, property, and eventually stockbroking. But at this point, at this early stage, you were looking at self-development and yeah. incomes NLP. Mm -hmm. Now, I've had a guy on this show called Darren Siegenberg, and he's a practitioner of NLP. And I know mm -hmm. loads of people that are practitioners, but you teach it. Is that right? Yeah, no? correct. Yeah. yeah. And they all, by the way, say it's fantastic. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Maybe tell us a little bit about what it is and, and maybe what made you do it at that time, because it's way before some of the other transitions in your life, isn't it? Yeah. So at the time, I was like really perplexed by what makes people tick and in fact what makes me tick and um right in tony robbins's early days yeah. i was introduced to robbins went to upw which you know people now so many people in the world have done but i was more taken with well who taught him and i found out that even though tony was um telling people it was called neuroassociative conditioning he'd actually learned from richard bandler and john grinder who were the originators of neuro-linguistic programming nlp yeah. Yeah. um but then there's a real um misunderstanding with nlp because the the true essence of nlp is what's known as modeling excellence so you know it could be i come into a studio like yours today and this is an excellent setup. So I want to model what it is that you do yeah. as someone who's excellent in putting together and preparing podcasts. Where people get lost is because the first ever model that was done was a therapeutic model. They think that NLP is all about therapy. It's not. Yeah. It's about modeling. So you could model in dentistry, in engineering, 
in you know in medicine you could model in any area and and the idea of modeling is to work out the difference that makes the difference which is the unconscious 20 percent of um actions or processes that are going on in the environment that are so unconscious that most people aren't paying attention to them but they're actually the difference that makes the difference in the perform in the performance yeah so, so when Grinder and Bandler did the original modeling inside of therapy, they came up with this 20% that they realized, well, you know, students who were studying psychology for five years or more couldn't get as good a set of results as they could get yeah. by working with just this narrow range that they'd been able to elicit. Which could be applied to anything. Be applied to anything. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. See, I didn't know that. Yeah. I so, didn't know that. But most people, even people who study NLP, don't know that. Yeah. That Grinder and Bandlow didn't set out to become known and world famous for therapeutic models. Yeah. That was just a byproduct of the process called modeling. See, it makes more sense now. So it was more, it didn't apply, to, it wasn't therapeutic. The NLP could be applied to business or applied to yeah. lots of other things. Which yeah. is what I went yeah. on to do. Get yeah. It. Yeah. At this point then, in your notes when we discussed it, you've got these huge overheads. Yeah. Yeah, 15, 15 grand a month, yeah. in fact. Tell us a bit about this because you're, you're spending money. You're doing, you consume, you're part of this material machine then, holidays, cars, houses, all of this. Yeah, and, and you know, really managed to get myself caught up in, you know, quicker, bigger, faster and and therefore this you know materialistic hamster wheel yeah which just runs in perpetuity and you know often people just don't realize that i have become able to observe and understand finance and money now in a way that i think the creator just uses it artfully and and i'm sure has a laugh from time to time yeah. You know, oh, Greg wants to earn a lot of money. Oh, okay, yeah, yeah, let's give Greg a lot of money. But meanwhile, Greg's going to burn as much as he's earning because yeah. Greg needs to learn the lesson that it's not about a materialistic um, world. It's not about consumption. But Greg wants to keep running harder and faster. And so, you know, I'm continued to allow to be working harder and harder. But I'm going nowhere. I'm just driving myself into the ground i'm burying myself i'm burning out which i do on a few occasions and you know i'm losing my health i know it's getting worse i'm deteriorating on all fronts yeah but now i've got to keep up with the joneses you know and and i've got to keep with the fabulous holidays and pay the school fees and you know all the mobile phones and you know everything i write about this in the book when you get you become trapped you Basically, quite often, when you pursue money, our compass in life should be, we should use, does this make me feel good and is it helping others? That's the compass, you know, how to navigate, rather than um, how much money is this going to make me? This is what we're taught at school, by the way, how much money we're going to make, what status it give me, you know, what power, etc., and so we're navigating and we're pursuing material wealth. And mm-hmm. I say all careers advisors need careers advice because mm-hmm. they tell you, they point in the direction of what's going to earn the most money. And that's mm-hmm. not the recipe for happiness. Mm-hmm. So you should be using this other compass. 
And we get to a certain point, and because you might be earning lots of money, but because what you're doing doesn't make you happy, you're miserable. And then some people start sniffing cocaine, other people get in debt and just keep buying bigger and better cars or mm -hmm. a bigger house, and you end up in debt. And once you're in debt, you can't then stop having this amount of money coming in suddenly, and you start to feel trapped. And that's usually when alcohol and drugs and other things get involved. And quite often, you just end up miserable, mm -hmm. and then you end up becoming ill. Mm-hmm. You know, and that is the road for a lot of people. Yeah. You know. Yeah, the pursuit of I'll be happy if and then, you know, if I earn a million pounds or I'll yeah. be happy when And you never you arrive. Know, the goal. Well you never arrive, no, yeah. because actually, you know, sums of money, you know, and I've worked in the millions, you know, sums of money actually the the ego grows the deal size grows and therefore you need to feed something much bigger. And yeah. so when you feed in at a bigger and bigger level, you just drop in deeper and deeper into the pit, into the mire or running harder and faster on the hamster wheel. Yeah. I, I know about becoming ill. I'm trying to do too much, become obsessed with things, but trying to do that whilst maybe working in construction, whilst getting up at two in the morning, writing my book, going to work, coming back at six at night, teaching meditation, doing it. And, you know, look, if I get two or three hours sleep, I've done that for long periods and you crash, you end up, you, you know, I've had a nervous breakdown um, and I've been very ill. So I learned the hard way. I'm hopefully getting a bit better at it now, but it takes practice for me anyway. So then we'll talk about where you go from here. And this is where you decide that you're rather than being at this level and being part of these schemes and things mm -hmm. that are happening, you're going to create the schemes. You're going to take a step up. You're going mm -hmm. to be a, a creator yourself. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Yeah. So uh, myself and uh, my brother-in-law, who's an incredibly bright human being, mm -hmm. um, we decide that we're going to design our own schemes as opposed to being these minions who are sent out to flog and peddle these schemes. Yeah. Why don't we go to where the real money's at and become the creators of these schemes? And so we do, we, we create. And so there, there are we, these um, lads in Liverpool who really, you know, living out the, um, what we were taught as, as kids, you know, bigger, faster, better. Yeah. You know, who is it you're going to be in life? You know, what stamp are you going to put on the world? So, you know, we set about therefore creating products um, are these the, financial products? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So financial products. So, so we designed um, like mortgage insurance, things like this. A little bit more um, yeah. involved. Um, you know, there's a there's a saying which I look back on, and it's really quite horrible. You know, which the world actually runs by at the moment is, you know, people are more interested in whether it's legal or not than whether it's good for them or good for anyone or not. Yeah. You know, so everyone's really pushing on the legality. So we were in the areas of tax, money and finance, and we were looking at legal ways of being able to extract large amounts of money from the system. Yeah. And in effect, we came up with a way of a legal way of printing money, which then led to a seven year um, journey um, with, the inland revenue yeah so they came you got arrested dragged from our beds yeah, yeah. there were 13 arrests right. on the day 
and uh, I was taken from my bed in Windermere. Um, oh, so you're actually in Windermere at this point? Not, yeah, yeah. Not Liverpool then? No, I'm, I'm in Windermere right, now. Right, yeah, right. yeah, Yeah, these things also happen <laughs> in Windermere. <laughs> so, uh, yeah, taken from a bed and, um, you know, with um, officers leaning over my bed, having yeah. stormed the house in the early hours of the morning and stripped the house bare, searched the kids' bags on the way to school. Yeah. Um, first question they asked was the drugs, money, and guns, and I said, you know, sorry, don't want to disappoint you fellas, but I don't do drugs. Yeah. Uh, there's no money on the premises, and I don't have any guns. You know, so that that was sort of. But I just remember that line distinctly, thinking, oh, I can't help you with any of them. Um, and then I was taken to Kendall Police Station, and I was interviewed by uh, the Revenue, who, who really were were thick um you know and that's not just me sat here they didn't understand one end of um pensions from the other yeah but they thought they were onto something and actually you know it's the way people at higher levels with power act um they'd managed to get a judge to sign off the arrests but they they were kicking our doors in because we'd done something that was legal which they didn't like, yep. and they then wanted to throw the book at us. Um, and when you're a minion in 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 a big pond, then you know Big Brother can stick its boots on your throat and try to choke you to death. Yeah, and that's the process that I was then due to go through. I can relate to many aspects of what you're saying in many different ways, none of which I can talk about. <laughs> <laughs> but I've. I've experienced a lot of things you're talking about and, and seen a lot of things you're talking about, you know. Yeah. And something else, people think that the system, you know, it's our system is corrupt as yeah. well, you know. Yeah, it's shot. It's really shot. Yeah. So eventually it arrives yeah. to Crown Court in Birmingham. Yeah. And, you know, we're talking, I, I, I'm a bit vague, I think it was 23 million was, yeah. the, was the number. Yeah. So they've had seven years to put their case together and uh, we arrive in court and we've told them over and over, look, you just don't understand what we've done and it's always sure. But even down to the point that our barristers and legal teams would say, look, guys, you do realise you're going to lose this. Mm. And we're like, but why? We, we've done nothing wrong. No, you're going to lose it because the revenue do not take someone this far and pay this much money not to win. Yeah. And, and we're like, well, surely it doesn't work like that. So there was a weird naivety. There's funny handshakes go on and all the, all of that business too, you know. Yeah, possibly. Yeah. Although, you know, I'm, maybe I'm the, the ray of light. Um, I, I always felt there was something deeper. There was a deeper spiritual meaning at play. But I'm sat in... Um, so I'll just tell for the audience sake. Yes. So every day we would have to re-educate the solicitors and the barristers because it was complicated and yeah. they didn't understand it. And I remember they'd sit in the room and they'd go, oh, get it now. Oh, <laughs> see how you do it. Oh, it's so good. Oh, wow. Why is everyone not doing this? And it was like yeah. they'd have these light bulb penny drop moments. But then the following day, we'd have to be back in explaining to them again the way it worked. And so the way a criminal trial works is that the defence go first and they have to prove their case. Well, every day we absolutely annihilated them. Witness, they, every witness they brought in, 
But what's also interesting is all of our accountants and solicitors all sided with the revenue. The minute the revenue knock, yeah. oh, it must be something wrong. These guys are bad. Yeah. Everybody dropped us. Yeah. In it. Well, the revenue, very, very rare they lose a case when they've gone to this, like, yeah. this amount of trouble. Yeah. 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 And we became quite famous mm. afterwards with in, in a small circle. Oh, you're the guys who beat the revenue. And, yeah. and we, we were a bit like, well, we didn't quite see it that way, you know, and I, I had a very different view to all the members of, of people. You know, I was fortunate because I had my meditation and all the practices. So were you still meditating back then? Had to, yeah. yeah, yeah. Had to. Pull yeah. that face again. Had, had to. to. Yeah. <laughs> it's like, yeah, I mean, talk about dark nights of the soul. You know, I understand now this was, this was a spirit. This was one of the deepest, most profound spiritual chapters in, in my life because it, it snapped me out of a lot of the unconsciousness. It was as though someone over me was watching, right, he's just not getting the lesson. Yeah, We're gonna have to send in some big guns here. <laughs> he, he needs really shaking up. And I was shaken to my foundations, you know. Yeah. Because I suppose on the flip side of this, if it didn't go well, you're going to jail, aren't you, you know, so. Oh yeah, minimum 10 years yeah. we're looking at. Yeah. yeah. So, Somebody had you back, yeah. Well, minimum 10 years, and we're being told we're going to lose. Yeah. And I remember, so the, the, the point for me is I'm sat in the courtroom and um, I'm sat and I'm having this thought of, actually, I'd rather go to jail than go home. Yeah. And the reason I'd rather go to jail than go home is because I cannot continue on this hamster wheel. Yeah. I cannot continue to pay these overheads and live this bullshit yeah. so-called life. I have run so hard, so fast for so long. I am exhausted. Mm. I am beat. And and in that moment, I'm like, right, this is the lowest, saddest thought I could possibly be having. It. I need to change something here. I need to change this. In the book again, I write about something very similar to this and I say that we're all on a treadmill going at 100 miles an hour and I got thrown off it, had a nervous breakdown, just come flying off it. And then I could look back, see what had been going on and I thought, how have I been doing this for so long? Mm -hmm. But the, the clever thing is you don't know you're on it until you get off it. So mm -hmm. only when you're off it and you have perspective and clarity and focus and you stand still can you see what you've been doing all your life. And yeah. I realised that there was no going back. Once yeah. you're off it, you do not want to get back on. And it's quite funny because even though I obviously want, you know, because I wouldn't be here, but people often say to me, but did you win? And it's like, of course I won because I'm sat here. Yeah. So they're, they're even quite drawn and taken into the story in that way that what happened was we got to half time. Um, the revenue had cheated, lied. They, they, if if you saw some of the ways they approached it, it was horrendous. Yeah. Um, to the point because they were desperate, because they were going to lose. Oh, they were desperate. They knew they were going to lose, but they didn't want you to know you were going to lose until they'd try anything. Yeah. Yeah, and what? Just one small thing that they tried, because I think it's it's something that's good for the listeners to understand that their expert, who was an internal person in the revenue, um, was clearly press ganged by some of the officers that had undertaken the arrests to the extent that when they arrive at the trial, they ask to substitute their expert. And we're like, well, hang on a minute. They've relied on this guy 
for the, for the last seven years. Why do they want to substitute? Yeah. So they put it forward to the judge to say, can we substitute this guy out and put this other guy in? And the judge then takes a couple of days to hear all the arguments as to why it should or shouldn't be allowed. Anyway, the judge finds in our favour and says, no, the expert needs to stand. Only at that point, they then tell us the guy left the revenue on the grounds of ill health uh, a year or so earlier. So they kept that quiet from the system. And the reason he left is because he knew he couldn't go and lie under oath yeah, at our trial, yeah, yeah. even though he'd lied in earlier documentation because they'd put him under pressure. I know of a comparable case to this one where people just started going missing left, right and centre. You know, I, I don't mean getting bumped off, but I mean people that were involved in a case then disappeared abroad or just went, they vanished, you know. Yeah. And this, yeah, this happens. So so just to round the story mm. for you, Pat, mm. then we get, so, so the judge at half time says, I can't listen to this nonsense any longer to the revenue. He says, I don't even know what your case is anymore. So the revenue have the right of appeal. They immediately appeal. We're sent then down to London to the Lord Chief Justice himself to the High Court where immediately, and it's done under a cloud of secrecy because no one's allowed to know that this is happening. Yeah. And and everyone's still, the barristers and the lawyers saying, look, he'll just send it straight back. He'll find some way of kicking it back into the system. You've got no chance. Strange as it happens, we were being looked over. Yeah. Lord Chief Justice reads through it and then just says, waste of waste of taxpayers' money, could have built three schools. Um, you know, the amount of money they threw yeah. at trying to put us away. It's, this um, is a really interesting question. So you found innocent, the case gets thrown out, but you get being banned from a director for 13 years. How, how can they do that? Okay, so, so, well, the first thing is then you say, well, surely we've got a huge claim now. Ah, but Banff director can't make a claim. No, 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 it? no. Oh. It's actually it's it's funnier than that. Um, the anyone who goes to court where you've been charged by a government body, it's frowned upon. No matter how much of your life has been expunged, it's frowned upon for you to go and make a claim against the public purse. Yeah, because the public purse has all already lost an incredible amount of money, which has nothing to do with you, by the way. But, but yeah, we were taught. I, yeah. we, I went to three different law firms, and they all said the same: you will not get a penny. They do not look favourably on it. The system doesn't look favourably on it, no matter how much of your life has been yeah. absorbed by this. I know a case where they did take them to court, and sorry, they they applied for compensation. I think it took eleven years, and they got it. Okay. So nice it story. does happen, yeah, yeah. but it's very rare. Yeah. Most people are dead and gone by the time you get yeah. try and get any money out of them. Yeah, yeah, and I suppose for us, you know, we're creative um, individuals and it was more about, if you think about it, oh my God, we just got our lives back. Yeah. But the final twist from the revenues point of view, so Lord Chief Justice, you've got to go back to Birmingham then to be, I think the word terms arraigned, which means they're letting you go. And... Um, so we get sent back and the judge in his summing up says, which he's clearly being asked to say this, I just need to tell you that um, this wouldn't have been possible had the measures that are now in place have been in place. And I remember my brother-in-law sat next to me writing out 11 other ways that we could have done what we did. 
So just to, you know, just in the spirit yeah. of, but they also said that in us finding you not guilty, we're not saying that this is legal because it, because it, and he said, I can't tell you that it's legal because I'm not a tax judge specifically. But what they're petrified of is that what we'd uncovered could have taken the whole system down yeah. financially. Well, this is a question I was going to pose to you. So you didn't break any laws. What you did wasn't illegal. And since you've, this case has happened and everything's moved on, has anybody else taken it up? Yeah, so ironically, there were other people who tried to mirror what we did, but most of them ended up um, on trial and getting sent to prison. Wow. Yeah, because they didn't understand the technicalities. Right. So, so they it's just like to the copy devil without, copy. Yeah yeah, 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 yeah. It's like the devil's in the detail. And actually, if these other people hadn't have done what they'd done, what happened to us probably never would have come to pass in the way that it did. But that's the path. Yeah. So if anyone can be bothered reading the case notes, then they'll get to the revenues final response to say, yes, these men got off. But the reason that they got off in basic summary was because we didn't have enough time to prepare our case and try seven them years. properly. Seven, <laughs> seven years. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. yeah.